Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of the Harsh Reality Podcast. This is episode 92, and I'm your host for this weekly uh, travelogue through the news and uh, interesting things that uh, catch my attention throughout the week, and I appreciate your making the Harsh Reality Podcast a part of your weekly routine. This week, I have a segment on the post office spying on Americans. I have a segment about anti-riot bills. I have a follow-up story on the January 6th incident at the Capitol. I have a follow-up about the COVID CDC death numbers, which we've all known were not correct for a while. I have a bunch of funny stories or uh, brief items in the grab bag that caught my attention and a couple of items that are follow-ups to stories that I've done over the last few weeks. So with that, let's get started. To the surprise of absolutely nobody, news broke this week that the U.S. Postal Service has been running a covert operations program that monitors American social media posts. You know, there's a lot of articles out there. I went ahead and went with the Yahoo News version of it, entitled, Strangely Enough, The Postal Service is Running a Covert Operations Program that Monitors American Social Media Posts. Here's a little bit of that story. The law enforcement arm of the U.S. Postal Service has been quietly running a program that tracks and collects American social media posts including those about planned protests, according to a document obtained by Yahoo News. The details of the surveillance report, known as ICOP, or Internet Covert Operations Program, have not previously been made public. The work involves having analysts trawl through social media sites to look for what the document describes as inflammatory postings, and then sharing that information across government agencies. Analysts with the United States Postal Inspection Service Internet Covert Operations Program monitored significant activity regarding planned protests occurring internationally and domestically on March 20th, 2021, says the March 16th government bulletin marked as law enforcement sensitive and distributed through the Department of Homeland Security's fusion centers. Okay, the story goes on a little bit. And actually, I believe there was a really funny tweet from, I I think it might have been Ted Cruz. And he said, finally, an answer to the question, is there any government agency not currently spying on Americans? Obviously, tongue in cheek, but there's no explanation in any of this of why the post office, whose job it is to take your letters and take it from this mailbox and go put it in the recipient's mailbox or take this package or your Amazon you know, doodad that you bought, whatever. How monitoring social media and distributing things that they find alarming across uh, government agencies, how that has to do with their mission isn't explained anywhere. And you know the post office famously is losing money by the dump truck full, by the cargo ship full every year, and they're constantly saying they need more money. And then we find out they're spying on people. And you know what? This might make sense if they would say, hey, we're doing this to monitor, say, Antifa riots or BLM riots because we have to, you know, they've got the streets blocked off and they do these autonomous zones and they're shooting people in there. And, you know, so we can't have our mail carriers going in there. And so we're we're monitoring these things for the purpose of keeping our our mailman, our mail lady, in my case you know, keeping our our male ladies out of these places because they could be dangerous. That's not what they're doing. They were gathering information, social media stuff on the worldwide rally on Freedom and Democracy Day or something. Uh, It was March 20th. I didn't even know about that. And I, I love freedom and democracy, so I would have probably supported that. But anyway, basically, it looks like 
it's been weaponized against those that they see are on the political right. But I would also note, however, that this might explain why the mail service has been crap lately. Has anybody else noticed that? I love my mail lady. Super, super lady. She's awesome. However, we noticed that the mail was a complete It was just a mess. Christmas packages, Christmas cards, not getting out. Uh, Another podcaster that I listened to, uh, he was saying that he was still getting an occasional Christmas card in January, February that was mailed mid-December. So it shouldn't be like this. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of children. And they're all grown now. And uh, the lovely and gracious Mrs. Har, she likes to send out packages on occasion to all of the kids. And we had an absolute mess this last batch of packages that we sent out, oh, maybe two weeks ago or so. And, you know, you get the tracking number. And not only has everything gotten really expensive, even the flat rate shipping, but on the tracking number, we could see these packages going to, some of them going to the same zip code just down the street from each other. One went straight there, and one was directed to New Jersey. We had some that were directed all the way to the other side of America, and then came back. Anyway, I'm not the only one who's noticed that the post office is having, the performance at the post office has gone way, way down just over the past several months. And of course, they're expensive as always, and they're spying on Americans with no apparent reason for doing so. Well, something that I've said for a long time that was needed I mean, I, I think we could have handled all these riots. They, they called them protests, but you know the stuff I'm talking about. We were pulling over monuments and blocking highways and you know attacking people that are sitting outside trying to have coffee, whatever. Pulling people out of cars and beating them. And I've said for a long time, just enforce the law. It's sort of like immigration. Just enforce the law. But of course, we ended up in a situation where the only ones that they were enforcing the law against were the people who were trying to escape these riots or somebody trying to stop them from pulling over a statue or, you know, when they were trespassing up uh, with the McCloskeys there in Missouri and the McCloskeys came out on their own property with firearms. And instead of arresting any of the protester rioters who were yelling death threats and on people's private property, instead of doing that, they arrested the McCloskeys, of course, because you're not allowed to resist them. And how many people in these uh, blocked highway things, blocked roadway things, did they arrest the driver for trying to escape these lunatics? It was a bunch. Well, not in Florida. As you might remember from, oh, sometime last year, Ron DeSantis signed an executive order or something to that effect, some action, and it had special rules for all this rioting and nonsense that was going on. Like no bail if you're arrested for attacking a police officer during a during a riot. If you pull down public property or destroy or demolish or deface public property, I think that was one mandatory jail time. And if you block a highway, it's mandatory jail time. Anyway, and you'll notice that Florida hasn't had any of that nonsense. Well, they actually came out with an anti-riot bill that was signed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this week. I've got a story here from LifeZet News. I like to support them. Entitled, DeSantis Signs Anti-Riot Bill That Enhances Penalties for Crimes Committed During a Riot. Here's a little bit of that story. On Monday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed an anti-riot bill after it passed the state Senate last week, legislation enhancing penalties for crimes committed during a riot. The bill, according to WFLA includes several measures introduced by DeSantis last summer as race protests and violent attacks on federal and police buildings made headlines. The Florida bill features many changes to the state's criminal and administrative law. It makes it difficult for cities and counties to reduce funding for police. 
It allows governments to be sued if they fail to stop a riot. It grants civil legal immunity to people who drive through protesters blocking a road. It creates a new aggravated riot second-degree felony charge for crimes stemming from riots of over 25 people. Anyway, and I would follow this up by, on Friday, the uh, Oklahoma actually passed a similar law there. And, you know, the thing that really got me about all this is, you know, I travel quite a bit, and I travel by car, and I did have some stress, especially when I had uh, my wife or uh, my family with me in the vehicle. And as I'd be going from city to city, and there were cities that were having problems with protests and and rioting and looting and that sort of thing. And you had to be concerned. Are there going to be rioters come out and block the road? Are they going to try to block it? And a lot of people said, you know what? I'm not stopping. And I, I'm one of those people. I don't know what I do in this situation, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion that if my truck is stopped, rather than just be at the mercy of an angry crowd, I'm going to get out of there and I'm going to deal with the legal consequences later. Sort of a modern version of I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by 6. So I don't know. But I think th- I think this is a great thing. And you'll notice that there hasn't been a lot of this nonsense going on in Florida. And this sort of locks that in. It gives legal consequences to doing these bad things. Oh, also, too, I don't know if you saw, but in trying to stop Oklahoma from passing this, Antifa and BLM went in and uh, they smashed their way into the Oklahoma Capitol building and they occupied the Capitol and had to all be arrested and dragged out. And it's interesting that nobody heard of that. Was that an insurrection? Is that a, is that sedition? Is that what that is? Because interesting, the, the media, that's all they talked about before when that happened, when you had people going into the Capitol for 45 minutes or whatever. And just funny crickets. Everybody's just ignored what they uh, what they did in Oklahoma, and the reason they went in there was to stop passage of this anti riot bill in Oklahoma. And speaking of the January sixth incident on Capitol Hill, I've got a story here from American Greatness entitled "Officer Sicknick Died of Natural Causes, Not Riot Injuries." Here's a little bit of that story. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, according to a bombshell today in the Washington Post, died January seventh of natural causes, not from injuries sustained in the Capitol protest the day before. The D.C. medical examiner told the Post that Sicknick suffered two strokes caused by a blood clot at the base of his brainstem. Quote, Francisco J. Diaz, the medical examiner, said the autopsy found no evidence the 42-year-old officer suffered an allergic reaction to chemical irritants, which Diaz said would have caused Sicknick's throat to quickly seize. Diaz also said there was no evidence of internal or external injuries. Two men have been arrested and charged with using bear spray against Sicknick on January 6th. Quote, the ruling likely will make it difficult for prosecutors to pursue murder charges in the officer's death. All right, so that's all I'm going to read from that. But just to bring you up to speed, this Officer Sicknick was a Capitol officer, and he passed away at the same time all this, this Capitol uh, protest thing was going on. And if you remember, the Democrats did a state funeral for him. The New York Times led with the story that he had been beaten to death by Trump supporters with a fire extinguisher. That was the story. And then it started to slip out that he didn't have any internal or external injuries of any kind. And so they they arrested a couple of people who had, they said, oh, you sprayed some bear spray or some, it was basically mace or um, pepper spray. And the pepper spray caused his throat to seize up, and so he died from that. Well, the medical examiner said, no, that didn't happen either. He actually had a very serious blood clot 
at the base of his brainstem, and that's what he had two massive strokes. But anyway, once again, we've got major media out there. New York Times still hasn't withdrawn their story that he was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher by Trump supporters. So, but anyway, they just say these things, and it doesn't matter if they're true or not, right? So, do you remember back during the early days of the whole COVID thing? That would have been in March 2020. I keyed in on something that. To me, I couldn't believe nobody was really talking about. There was some talk in conservative media about it, but I thought it was a pretty huge deal. You know, there's regulations about how a cause of death is listed. But on March 24th, 2020, the CDC issued guidance, an official guidance, real significant part of that. Down at the bottom, on page two, it said that COVID should be listed if it was the primary cause of death, if it was a contributing cause of death, or if it could have been a contributing cause of death. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, so that that could be basically anything. If you don't know, then you're supposed to attribute it to COVID? It didn't make sense. And I remember I have a family member who is a medical professional, and I remember talking to her about this, and she thought, that can't be true. She understood what I was saying, but she hadn't heard that anywhere else. And she goes, I don't think that's true. And so I went ahead and I went to the CDC website. I went to the .gov website, and I actually linked to that, and I texted it to her. I said, here's the CDC guidance, March 24th, 2020. Look, and she read it, and she thought, well, that can't mean what it what you think it means. Well, we now know that it did mean that. And so I've got this story entitled, CDC violated law to inflate COVID cases and fatalities. And basically, the story says that a team led by Dr. Henry Ely started looking at CDC data on COVID-19 cases and fatalities in mid-March 2020. And shortly after this, they realized the agency was vastly exaggerating fatalities They were over-reporting fatalities that was enabled by a March 2020 change in how cause of death is reported on death certificates, rather than listing COVID-19 as a contributing cause in cases where people died from other underlying conditions, it was to be listed as the primary cause. And so as of August 23rd of 2020, the CDC's official numbers were 161,392 fatalities caused by COVID-19. But what Dr. Ely and his team of researchers did was ignore that March 24th guidance, and they went through fatality by fatality, and they said, if we applied the long-standing rules for reporting deaths, what would the number be? And you're never going to guess, 9,684. Those were the people who primary cause of death was COVID-19. So in other words, for the other 150,000, 153,000 fatalities, that everybody was reporting as of August of last year, they died of something else and maybe they had COVID. Or, according to the new guidelines, if they even could have had COVID. Forget if they never tested for it, but if it was possible that they could have had COVID, they were supposed to list COVID as the primary cause of death. Anyway, the story goes on to talk about how the CDC violated federal law as the Paperwork Reduction Act data collection and publication to be overseen by is supposed to be overseen by the Office of Management and Budget. Proposed changes have to be published in the Federal Register and open to public comment. None of these federal laws were followed. And I'll tell you, it's sort of like they've done with a bunch of other things. Yeah, it's probably technically not constitutional or lawful or whatever, but it's an emergency. If you remember at that time, there was the government's going to lock you in your home. On what basis? On what authority? They had no authority, but they said, well, it's an emergency. And I, I imagine that we're going to learn more as time goes on. 
I'd like to take this opportunity to encourage you to check out my latest national column over at WorldNet Daily entitled, Until the GOP Fights Like Democrats, There's No Point in Winning Elections. And in it, I talk about all the big changes that Democrats are making just over the last few weeks and the stuff they're promising to make here uh, coming up. As a matter of fact, the House uh, voted to add Washington, D.C. as a brand new state and, of course, getting two Democrat senators. And there's been talk of Puerto Rico. Of course, that's been going on for a while. But again, that would be another two Democrat senators. They talked about abolishing the filibuster. Remember, we talked about that before, that the filibuster is racist. They're talking about packing the Supreme Court. They want to add four additional Supreme Court seats. And of course, Joe Biden will get to fill those four seats in addition to any Supreme Court vacancies that pop up during his term. But basically, these are examples of GOP weakness because over the years, They've not really opposed any of this crap. And it's sort of like a situation where if you're playing a game with somebody and so you're playing by the rules, but then when the other side gets their turn, they either tear up the rule book or they play by a completely different set of rules or they ignore the rules they don't like or whatever. And then when it's your turn again, you're held to the rule book. That's what the GOP's done for the last three decades or so. And it's allowed Democrats to just constantly move the ball down the field. The GOP, until they start playing the same game that the Democrats are, instead of sitting around and wringing their hands and worrying about how they're going to make CNN stop talking bad about them, there's no point in winning. As a matter of fact, if Democrats push through their effort to basically to nationalize elections so that everything will be controlled at the federal government level by some bureaucracy, of course, and take that away from the states and local levels. I mean, they're not going to be able to win anything anyway. I'm not even sure if they can win anything now at the national level. And the reason is we've normalized this cheating scheme where an otherwise conservative state, all it needs is a densely populated Democrat held area where they hold off reporting votes until all the votes are in for the rest of the state. Then they magically come up with just enough votes in the middle of the night to cover what the rest of the state put in. And in case you're new to the program, that's uh, the Cook County Gambit, and that was perfected in Illinois by the Chicago Democratic Machine. So anyway, hats off to the Democrats for playing to win. I wish the Republicans would. I'd also like to take this opportunity to encourage you to head on over to whatfinger.com. You know, it's a one-stop shop, and it's the first place I go every morning. And it's the number one conservative alternative news aggregator on the entire internet. Now, there's a lot of places you can get your news, but there's no place quite like whatfinger.com because it really is a one-stop shop. They do a fantastic job of curating these things. And so if you're new to the program, it's just a great place to, to look at first thing in the morning. I'm telling you, with a cup of coffee, there's there that's the first website you want to go to to see what's going on. Now, I talk about whatfinger.com because I use whatfinger.com. And you should too. It's like what finger, like thumbs up, thumb down. And actually, that's in their logo. It's whatfinger. It's whatfinger.com. So I saw a funny story over at Breitbart this uh, last week. Report, Maxine Waters requested police escort to Minneapolis protests. So basically she went to Minnesota in order to encourage rioters to engage in violence, which is a is a felony, but seems like they can do anything they want. Anyway, here's a little bit of that story. Representative Maxine Waters, Democrat from California, reportedly asked for a police escort to Minneapolis over the weekend where she urged activists to stay in the streets during protests against police. 
Town Hall obtained and published the document on Monday, appearing to show the request from Waters listed as the primary protectee and a police escort in and out listed underneath special requests. Video footage showed Waters surrounded by protesters and reporters outside the police station in Brooklyn Center, where she told citizens to hit the streets unless Chauvin was convicted for murder. So yeah, she was uh, outside the police station protesting police and bashing police, but uh, she needed a police escort in order to get there and protect her from the people in that crazy mob she was standing in getting riled up. I got a few funny stories here. You know, every once in a while, there's a politician that I just find incredibly amusing. Right now, we've got this Democrat senator from Arizona. Her name is Kirsten Cinema. You know what? I like her. I've liked her from when she first kind of bumbled into that seat back in 2018. She is not like anybody else on Capitol Hill. And I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. But she reminds me of two other famous office holders. One, uh, those of you old enough to remember Jim Traficant, he was from the 70s, 80s. Man, you talk about old school politician. He ended up in Congress. And I think he passed away a few years ago. Tough dude, though, from Northeast Ohio. I think he was Democrat sheriff. He was a Democrat congressman. Uh, he's just, oh, and he ended up going to prison for something. I can't remember what, but uh, I don't know, some kind of bribe or corruption kind of thing. Not any of that. But anyway, but Jim Traficant was a guy who could work with anybody. Jim Traficant was a guy that drove his own party absolutely batty. And he was fun to watch. I, he just basically, he marched to his own drummer. And and I appreciated him for that. The other guy is is Donald Trump. Another guy who drove his own party absolutely nuts. Kirsten Cinema is doing the same thing. I've got this story here from BizPack Review. Now this, uh, I'm going to go ahead and edit this. So this will be a PG. We'll say this will be PG by the time this gets edited. But the headline over at BizPack Review, Senator Kirsten Cinema flaunts radio edit offering on Insta message infuriating members of her own party. Here's a little bit of that story. A photo of Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten Cinema went viral online Monday after she was spotted colorfully dressed and sipping on a drink. But that wasn't all that stood out. A closer look at the picture which was posted to her Instagram page, revealed she was also wearing a ring on her right index finger with the words, Radio Edit. Off. And that's all I'll read from that story. But I would note that the people who are outraged the most about this are other Democrats. Because, you know, she's somebody who's, she's not a vote that the Democrats can count on. And, you know, I, I was first impressed by her it was when she first came into the Senate. And do you remember when all those ladies, it was uh, the Me Too thing was going on. I think the Kavanaugh thing had happened. And so at the State of the Union address, Ocasio-Cortez and all those crazy ladies were all wearing white. I don't know why they were doing that, but they all wore white. And Kirsten Cinema, she, she didn't participate in that nonsense. She was just dressed like a normal person. And at some point when Donald Trump was talking about I don't know, something he was talking about. And there was a pl an applause line. And she thought, hey, you know what? That is a good thing. And so she stood up and clapped for the president. I think it was Dianne Feinstein leaned over. And you can look this up on YouTube and said to her, you better watch your ass. At that point, 
I thought, you know what? She's not doing this. Hey, we're all being little girl victims over here and we're all wearing white. She didn't do that. She also was like, man, eh, she's mostly going along with her party. But when President Trump said something she agreed with, she's like, yeah, okay, I can agree with that. And I know that she's given them fits on certain other things because we have a 50-50 split in the Senate. And so they're always having to go to her and make sure she's going to vote for Democrats, which I know drives them nuts. But you add on to the fact she is her own person. And the fact that she's easy on the eyes, that's just a bonus. So tip of the hat to Kirsten Cinema. I wish more politicians were like her. Well, you know how they're getting rid of men and women and mom and dad and that sort of thing. Instead, what they're going to is person one and person two or parent one and parent two or whatever. Anyway, I've got this story from the post-millennial New England Journal of Medicine erases women, uses the term pregnant person. Here's a little bit of that story. The New England Journal of Medicine published a report on the efficacy and risks of COVID vaccines for pregnant persons in their article entitled Preliminary Findings of MRNA COVID-19 Vaccine Safety in Pregnant Persons. The more than a dozen listed authors, all of them doctors referring to pregnant persons. We've seen this quite a bit lately. They've done... um, I know we've had persons with vaginas and persons with penises uh, is is one thing that they're doing. And the, in the American, we had a story, I think maybe six months ago or so, the American Cancer Society or something was talking about cervical cancer and they referred to persons with a cervix. And I want to be more like women. They're called women. But anyway, this is just the latest New England Journal of Medicine. So you're not a woman anymore. There's just a pregnant person. It's kind of a funny story I saw over at Blue State Conservative. Uh, another example of systemic racism, bicycle helmets. Seriously. A recent article from the Seattle Times details a new campaign being undertaken by bicyclist groups in the Seattle area to abolish a King County law requiring helmet wearing by bicyclists. The reason the groups cite for seeking repeal of the law? Racism explaining that minority bicyclists are being victimized, quote, by disproportionate enforcement of the law. So basically, there's two arguments, and neither one really makes a lot of sense, but they especially don't make sense when they use them together. The first argument for getting rid of the law is that uh, racist police are using the bicycle helmet law to unfairly target black people who ride bicycles, that the bicycle helmet law is just a pretext for racist police to harass minority bicyclists. But then they say, and also, black people are too poor to afford a bicycle helmet. Uh, Actually, there's a quote here in the story, quote, folks aren't riding around without helmets because it's fun. They're doing it because helmets aren't cheap. I, I don't know. I don't know what their argument is, but basically they're trying to get rid of the whole bicycle helmet law because, uh, because bicycle helmets are racist or something. I don't know. Hey, did you see that Joe Biden had this internet climate summit? It was a big, big deal and meeting of all these international leaders. Basically, he's on Zoom or, or something like that. And it was live streamed on YouTube. A couple of funny things about it. Joe Biden is sitting there by himself. He's wearing a mask. It's like, why are you wearing a mask on Zoom, sir? I'm not sure why. They never did say. But anyway, maybe he's going to get COVID through the, through the YouTube. But anyway, the other thing about it was, as somebody pointed out, there were literally 200 watchers or viewers of this YouTube video. 
The Kyle Rittenhouse thing is not over yet. As a matter of fact, I'm not really sure where they're at in the criminal trial process on this, but uh, I did see a story this week at PJ Media entitled Virginia Police Department Fires Cop Over Donation to Kyle Rittenhouse Legal Fund. Here's a little bit of that story. On Tuesday, a Virginia city fired a police lieutenant after a data breach at a crowdfunding site revealed that the lieutenant had contributed to the legal fund of Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old boy who opened fire amid riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, seemingly in self-defense. The cop, like a few other police officers across the country, used his official email address to make the donation, and he also posted a comment supporting Rittenhouse. So basically, the police officer donated 25 bucks on an anonymous website, and when he donated the 25 bucks, he put a little message with the anonymous donation God bless. Thank you for your courage. Keep your head up. You've done nothing wrong. Every rank and file police officer supports you. Okay, so that's that's the message with a $25 anonymous uh, donation. I'm not sure why he was fired exactly. There's a few things about this story, though. First, it was an anonymous donation, and anybody can, you can donate to somebody. There's nothing illegal about donating 25 bucks to some anonymous charitable thing. But you know how the left is always appalled when somebody gets hacked? Well, what do you think happened here? We had some Antifa, BLM hackers or whatever. They got into the Give, Send, Go servers. They took all this information out of there, and then they started comparing it to, hey, is there anybody on all these lists that we can dox? That is, that we can you know blast or we can get fired for, uh, you know, for making a donation. And... It was kind of dumb that he used his, I mean, he could have been put in any email address, but he put in his official police department email address when he did it. He should have used a, I'm not sure. I don't know if he could have put in a fake email address. I'm not sure. But anyway, the point is that the only reason that anybody knew that this cop gave 25 bucks and told a kid, hey, God bless, is because criminal hackers illegally got into the servers and started doxing people when they got their secret information. But secondly, I really would like to know what exactly he was fired for. And if it wasn't something that you can fire somebody for, like uh, like I can see maybe misusing your government computer or something. But I mean, honestly, how many people made a contribution to BLM or made a contribution to Hillary's campaign or whatever, and they use their work computer? Is that something that typically somebody gets fired over? I mean, it's not, but hey, you might get a reprimand and say, hey, don't do that again. So I'm curious to get more information about that in the future. See if you file suit. Staying in the state of Virginia, which seems to be crazy these days. I've got that story. Virginia Department of Education eliminating accelerated math courses in the name of equity. Here's a little bit of that story. This is from Daily Caller, by the way. The Virginia Department of Education is seeking to eliminate accelerated math courses before the 11th grade in the name of equity, according to Fox News. Loudoun County School Board member Ian Sorotkin announced Tuesday that the Virginia Mathematics Pathways Initiative which seeks to revamp the K-12 math curriculum statewide over the next few years, is looking to eliminate all math acceleration prior to 11th grade. So putting this in plain English, what's going on here is it's not fair that some kids are better at math than other kids, and so the Virginia Department of Education is simply getting rid of the advanced math courses so that the smart kids can't do the math that they're supposed to be doing at their grade level, and then go on to an accelerated course and learn higher concepts. So what they're doing is just getting rid of all that because it's not fair 
because some kids were doing very well in math and other kids weren't doing as good in math. And so now all kids up through 11th grade are going to be capped at just learning whatever it is at that grade level, and then they will stop them. Very sad. Well, this is, I got a follow up to this story from last week, and it's uh, the story is still bumping around out there that California is going to allow uh, inmates to decide whether they're boys or girls and then go to whatever prison they want to go to. So if you're a, a prison inmate in California and you are a man, but you decide that you're actually a woman, then you can go ahead and be sent to prison in the women's prison. Now, I actually mentioned during that story, a story that we did maybe a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, in Scotland, they were having a terrible problem with particularly male sex offenders who were saying that they were really females. And so they were letting them do that, what they're talking about doing in California now. And they were letting that they were putting them in the women's prisons. But then there were examples. These prisoners were then going on to sexually assault the females in the female prison that, you know, so that you had a convicted rapist. As a matter of fact, there was this one in particular that the news story that kind of jarred this this up to national attention. There was a convicted rapist who claimed that he was now a woman and Scottish authorities actually put him in a women's prison where he committed more rapes. Well, anyway, I've got a story again here from Scotland. And this is over at the Christian Post entitled, Male Rape Suspects in Scotland Are Allowed to Self-Identify as Female, Police Say. Here's a little bit of that story. Amid ongoing contention surrounding gender ideology in the United Kingdom, alarms have been sounded about a policy allowing those suspected of rape in Scotland to self-identify as female. The Times reported Saturday that a freedom of information request from a feminist policy think tank uncover that Scotland police said that if a rape or attempted rape is perpetrated by, quote, a male who self-identifies as a woman, the male who self-identifies as a woman would be expected to be recorded as a female on relevant police systems, end quote. Concerns about the confusion this sows into public data are being raised amid conflicting information about how law enforcement agencies document crimes. Kath Murray, a policy analyst from Murray Blackburn McKenzie, said, Recording and presenting violent and sexual offenses committed by male as female distorts our understanding of the nature of offending by women and men. It obscures whether changes shown in statistics are due to real changes or only to changes in recording. In extremists, it may lead to the development of policies and projects based on false information. So the bottom line here is that the recording by the police of you know who the offender is and who the victim is and all that, that when you allow them to say whatever it is they want to say on there, it's screwing up the statistics on these crimes, these victims, and these offenders. Another thing that's been made very complicated that actually really isn't complicated. And finally this week, I have a follow-up to uh, something I talked about last week. I said that Mike Pence, I think his, his political career is over, but uh, he's he's over at Heritage Foundation now. He's He's joined up with the Mitt Romney and Barack Obama wing of the Republican Party. And I said that 
we know that his career is over when John Boehner threw his weight behind him and said, oh yeah, that's our guy, man. We love Mike Pence. Yeah, when John Boehner is praising you, you know that your days are over in Republican politics. But I saw a story this week from nationalfile.com entitled Mike Pence scores 19% approval in Republican presidential primary poll that excludes Donald Trump. So I'm deeply suspicious of this. First of all, I don't think Mike Pence is the number one choice of one out of five Republican voters. And uh, in case you're new to the program, I, I like Mike Pence. I like him as a person. I've met him several times. I worked on his campaign back in 1988 when I was a college student. So I'm one of his biggest fans until January of 2020. Since then, he's basically been Mitt Romney Jr. But I'm suspicious of this because let me give you some of these other numbers. I, I don't think Pence is at 19%. Although if he is, that's his high watermark. He'll never, ever get any higher than he is right now. They've got Christy Noem at 1%. For comparison, they have John Kasich, who I'd be surprised if you could find two people who will vote for John Kasich, much less 2%. So they got John Kasich at 2%, Christy Noem at 1%. Come on, that's not real. Ron DeSantis from Florida actually showing at 14%. I, I don't know. That might be pretty close. But anyway, still a few years off, but food for thought. So with that, we'll wrap things up. I appreciate your making the harsh reality a part of your weekly routine. I'd like to take this opportunity to encourage you to head on over to WND.com and check out my latest national column. Until the GOP fights like Democrats, there's no point in winning elections. And you can find that column easy enough. You just go over to uh, your favorite search engine and put in my name, Sean Harshey, and WND. And what you'll get is my author page, with all of my columns in chronological order, with the latest one always right on top, so you can jump in there. And we have a robust comment section going on. I would encourage you to read those comments, jump on in. I love hearing what you're thinking. If you want to drop me an email, you can do that through WND by clicking on the link next to my picture, or you can go over to seanharshey.com and contact us tab. Either way, I would love to hear from you, or if you want to jump in the comment section over at WND, either way is great. Until then, I'll see you next time on episode 93 of the Harsh Reality Podcast. I'm Sean Harshey, and this is the Harsh Reality.